For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? It's Martin Luther King Day. I heard Reverend Al Sharpton say today, it's not a day to take off, but actually a day for us to actually get on. And let's all get involved with what we can do to make the world a better place. As you all know, all this month, I have been celebrating authors and books, and I am such a big fan of our guest tonight. Before we bring him on, for those of you who are here for the first time, I want to share with you just a little glimpse of some of the authors that I have had on this show since we started doing this at the beginning of COVID. Here they are. We're celebrating authors and books all month long. It's National Book Blitz Month. Here they are. Now, actually, there are three S's in show business. There's Sinatra, there's Streisand, and there's Santo Pietro. And I'm a huge fan of the latter. You don't believe me? Here's Considering Dar's Day. Here's Sinatra. Here's The Sound of Music Story. Here's The Way We Were, which we are going to celebrate tonight. It all begins with an incredible movie. Let's take a look at the trailer and we will meet Tom on the other side. Here it is. Wouldn't it be lovely if we were old? We'd have survived all this. And everything would be uncomplicated and easy. Like it was when we were young. Katie, it was never uncomplicated. Memories like the corners of my mind. Misty watercolor memories of the way we were. Save Spain! Stop Franco! Katie, what are you selling? Stop. The ROTC, you can have it cheap! <laughs> Fascist. Two hamburgers, two cheeseburgers, and four Coke. Onion? Yeah, in the Cokes. Pie. It mustn't be too serious. I won't be 
And here he is, Tom. I normally begin my shows by asking my guests, who or what are you celebrating? But instead of asking you that question tonight, I'm going to ask you, what was your favorite Saturday? Wow, that is an <laughs> unexpected question. <laughs> I asked this question because today, I, yeah, I went back and I watched The Way We Were this afternoon. Uh, it's been a long time since I sat and watched the film, but I've been so immersed in your book. As I was sitting here preparing for tonight's show, I said, you know, I'm going to stop and I'm going to go and watch this film. It's such a classic film. And I have to tell you, every time that incredible, luscious score builds up, yeah. I get goose pimply. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say, I just, the tears just well up in my eyes. And one of the things that you say in the book, and we're going to delve into so much tonight, is that both Katie and Hubble are parts of all of us. And, you know, it's, you know, and Arthur Lawrence and Sidney Pollack, I have to give them both credit, you know, on making this happen. But they've captured a little bit of all of us in both of those characters. And perhaps that's why that film resonates so much with all of us. I, I think that's a very well said because it's, um, it, it's the attraction of opposites and uh, we can all relate to parts of each of the characters. So Katie, you know, the outsider, the kind of uh, abrasive, um, sometimes nagging, but ultimately uh, with such a great heart that you respond to her and Hubble, the golden boy, everything comes so easily for him, but he's lacking the commitment and passion that she has. So they in many ways complete each other. And I think that's how and why we can all relate to them because we all are looking for, you know, the elements or the people that are going to complete us. Well, as you saw in my introduction, uh, and this is not just lip service, I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, I have so many of your books. I've read them. And I want to ask, how did this come about that you wrote this particular book, which is brilliant, by the way, for everyone out there. You've got to read this book. And you can't put it down. Well, thank you. That That's awfully nice. Thank you very, very much for saying that. And, you know, I... I started thinking about the way we were uh, because I heard and saw two women reenacting the final scene of the movie verbatim by heart. And I thought, now this is really interesting. They're so obsessed with the movie. They, they have to do it themselves. And, and then on an, another level, I realized that um, what I wanted to do was th that th if I wrote about the way we were, it would complete what I call my trilogy of books about movies that people don't just like, but become obsessed with. And the first one was The Godfather, which people watch endlessly. The second one was The Sound of Music. And then I thought, oh, the way we were, that'll complete it. A drama, a musical and a romance. So, uh, yeah. I have to ask you, um, are you happy with the ending? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it is kind of 
a, a perfect ending. It's not a perfect film uh, because as I explained in the book about what they did with some of the editing, but that those last five minutes uh, when they meet for the last time, that, you know, that just is like a, a, a punch to the gut. It, it affects all of our emotions and it's, it's really, it should never be touched. So that ending. Well, I want to go back a little bit. Do you remember the first time that you saw the film? Uh, I, you know, I remember uh, when this film, uh, first of all, the 50th anniversary is coming up. Right. Uh, so perfect timing, of course, with uh, the book coming out now. But I remember the phenomenon of the rise of Barbara Streisand at this time. And also Robert Redford, it was like the perfect storm coming together. And the, you know, and you also uh, talk about this in the book and I don't want to give away too much of the book because we want everyone to read this, but um, it showing up in the newspapers that they had Robert Redford and then they didn't have Robert Redford. And then it was in the newspaper again the next day that they did have Robert Redford. So it was almost like this yo-yo effect. Um, Obviously, they were not playing with the affections of the American public, but it was almost as if they were playing with the affections of the American public. Because (laughs) here were two of the biggest movie stars coming together to make what could become one of the biggest movies and did uh, of all time. Um, And, you know, and then we learn a little bit along the way of how difficult it was to get Robert Redford to finally say yes. Yeah. He was uh, very, very reluctant to make the movie uh, because he felt that the uh, screenplay was weighted so heavily in her favor that it was her story and that he was a cardboard figure. And he was very friendly with Sidney Pollack, having already made uh, films with Sidney Pollack. And Pollock just went to work on him and tried to wear him down and say, you have to make this film. You need to have a romantic leading man role because he he was a star. You know, he had done Butch Cassidy, but he hadn't done an all out romance like this. Not in a while. I mean, I mean, he had had some of those early on in his career, but it had been a while since those had happened. Right. And and, and that's correct. Uh, But his persona had been taken over really by Butch Cassidy and the Sunday right. kid. And uh, so uh, Pollock just went to work on him. And what finally convinced him was when Pollock said, we will bring, I will bring in other writers. We will rewrite the script. We will beef up the part of Hubble. And which is ultimately they brought in 11 writers, including Francis Ford Coppola. This made Arthur Lawrence furious because his screenplay was being manhandled by 11 different writers. And at the same time that Redford finally reluctantly agrees, Barbara, of course, knew as soon as she read the treatment that she was going to make this movie. And I loved when I was researching it and she confirmed this because I had this great written exchange with her about for the purposes of my book. And she said that she started to read the treatment and she remembered the great director, David Lean, saying, if a treatment has five good scenes in it, you need to make the movie. And Barbara said to me, wrote to me, this had more than five great scenes. 
That so, jumped out at me. It was like a lesson in filmmaking right there yeah. in that one passage. Yeah, it, it, it was. it's great because, you know, she was gung-ho, he was so reluctant and they come together and it's this kind of magical pairing. Um, I think, and I say this in the book because, you, you know, part of it, of course, is my opinion that in his other pairings, which were three times with Jane Fonda and Meryl Streep and Lena Olin, it never had that chemistry, that full-on sex appeal that Streisand and Redford had together. It, it, because they're so opposite, that's what made it so great. And I, I love the fact that so many aspects of Arthur Lawrence's life uh, found its way onto the pages of right. this story. And also when you talk about the writers that were being uh, brought in or were being bandied about to be brought in, um, some of them were blacklisted writers that yes. were also, and that was intriguing to me as well. Um, but the, again, there were other people that were bandied about, you know, in terms of a possible co-star, but I don't think that any of them really would have gotten there. Do you, I mean. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. And because Redford was so reluctant and he was making the producer Ray Stark, who was enormously powerful, he was making Ray Stark crazy because he was so indecisive and said yes. And then the next day, as you said, there was a retraction in the Hollywood Reporter. And, you know, and they also had a history, if you want to talk about that for a moment. Yeah, they they had worked together and it was a clash of men two men who had very definite opinions and each wanted their own way. And uh, so Stark said to Ray, to Sidney Pollack, that tonight is the deadline. That's it. Go over to his apartment and get an answer out of him. And, and then when he called the apartment to say, did you get the answer? And Pollack said, no, not yet. And Stark barked at him and said, that's it. Ryan O'Neill's going to play the role. That's it. And, and, uh, Sidney Pollack said, no, no, you have to give me more time. And at the 11th hour, Redford capitulated and he said, I did it because of my faith in Sidney and because he said there would be rewrites. And it truly was the 11th hour. It was the 11th hour. It was late at night. Yeah, that's what it was kind of, you know, this real life scene out of a great Hollywood movie. Now, I, you know, it's funny that you say that. I was thinking this would make such a great scene in a movie and nobody would believe it was happening. Right. Absolutely, as was true of many things in in the making of the film. Uh, that's why I had so much fun researching it, and I spent several days in Washington D.C. at the Library of Congress because that's where Arthur Lawrence's papers are held. And first of all, it was just great as a writer to be in the Library of Congress because oh, it you know it's incredible it, to be there. Yeah, it's really exciting, and and then to read his. Uh, handwritten letters and correspondence, and especially, as I say in the book, as we all know, Arthur Lawrence was a man of definite opinions, and he wrote in really? an eight-page, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was good, an eight-paged, single-spaced memo to Ray Stark in which he was just in effect, on the page, yelling about everything he didn't like in the rough cut he had seen. And I thought, 
this is really interesting. There, he is just speaking his mind and he, the consequences be damned. And ultimately, you know, Ray Stark fired him from the picture and then rehired him when they got in trouble. So that made it interesting, too. You know, it reminded me almost of, you know, West Side Story with Jerome Robbins being fired from the film. Such one of the uh, integral creative talents being yeah. fired from their baby, their their creation. But in the case of Jerome Robbins, of course, he never was brought back, although we know that he was working behind the scenes right. with many of the actors, uh, George Chakiris I've had on the show. And George Chakiris said that he was privately coaching uh, everyone on the set. And, you know, I mean, uh, at night they were getting the phone calls and everything, and he was really guiding them through the film. Um, you, uh, you know, and I love the telegram that Barbara got when she was out of the country to let her know that she had her leading man. Yeah, because Barbara was at, uh, while all of this was going on, she was in Africa filming up the sandbox and kind of on tenterhooks wondering if Redford was in fact going to co-star. And it was her then agent, Sue Mengers, who mm -hmm. sent her a telegram that she got in Africa that read Barbara-Redford. And that's how she knew that Redford was going to make the movie. So that's a pretty good story in and of itself. I wonder where that, I, I hope she still has that telegram. She has I, to have that telegram. I, I would think she would because, you know, Barbara has those amazing archives. And so I, I wonder, you know, she's writing her autobiography and maybe it'll make an appearance in that. One of the things that I really love about your book um, is that you really, uh, throughout the book, you give each of the creative talents their due, which is very rarely done in books such as this. Um, was, I mean, what was your motivation? Thank God that you did this. Was that something that you just decided to do, you know, in honor of this particular film or... Is this something that's always been deep down inside of you? Well, that's a, a really good question. And I think I, I feel that um, these were so many of the people on this film were major league Hollywood, you know, the heavy hitters. And also, I, I think, you know, to me, film is so collaborative and I... I don't always believe in the auteur theory because I think if the director is the absolute author of the film as that theory holds, I always find myself thinking, well, who wrote the screenplay that you shot? So Keep talking, you just reminded me of a quote in your book. <laughs> okay. Keep talking. Oh, okay. And so um, I wanted to give all these players their due because it's not just uh, Streisand and Redford. It's Ray Stark. It's Arthur Lawrence. It's Sidney Pollack. It's the fantastic cinematographer, Harry Stradling Jr. You know, they Marvin Hamlish, the Bergman. So it, this was a collaborative film. Uh, here's the quote. Uh, Films thought of as a director's medium because the director creates the end product that appears on the screen. Uh, it's that stupid auteur theory again that the director is the author of the film. But what does the director shoot? The telephone book? That, of course, is a quote from Billy Wilder, and it's a great quote. Uh, but you just use the magic word collaboration, and it all 
the collaborative process is something that I really think about this alchemy of all of the right elements coming together. And let's break down the alchemy of this film. And let's start at the top with Sidney Pollack. Mm -hmm. And from Sidney Pollack coming on board, and he had very strong opinions from the moment that he said yes to how this film should go. Yeah, I think uh, Sidney Pollack, uh ended up being absolutely the right director for this film, even though he and Arthur Lawrence were really at loggerheads through much of the shooting. And, and I think the reason why Sidney Pollack um, was the right person is because Sidney Pollack was a very good actor himself, as we saw in Tootsie, you know, he's hilarious in Tootsie. And he understood the actor's viewpoint and how to handle these two enormous stars kind of at the zenith of their power. And I think because, so he had that viewpoint and I think he was, although incredibly strong-willed, he was a man, he, he was not a yeller or a screamer, you know, he took time with people. And I, so I think you needed that kind of presence uh, behind the camera to, bring along Barbara and Redford and all the other uh, uh, disparate elements uh, combined. And, you know, the success of the film was far from assured. And I have the quote in the book that I really love that concerned Sidney Pollack, which was the very early on a Columbia executive said to Sidney Pollack, you're making a movie where Barbara Streisand doesn't sing and she's a communist. Are you trying, Are you to, trying to kill me? <laughs> Yes, and of course, I mean, at this point, and then, of course, Robert Redford also did not want Barbara Streisand bursting into song in the middle of the film at, right. at any point. Yeah, and he was very, you know, he obviously respected her talent, but he said, this is, you know, a, a dramatic piece, and it's not a musical, and we don't want her bursting into you know, he didn't say, but like, don't rain on my parade in, in exactly. the middle of, of the movie. And uh, and Sidney Pollack uh, was the one who said to Redford, in the right material, she's fantastic. This is going to work. What so, was the starting off point for you? I mean, I mean, we're reading the book and we there's a narrative to your story and the story of this film. But uh, how did it start for you? You mean, uh, how did it start my, what was the springing off, the springboard yes, for me? What was the first, what was the first words that you typed out that you, that began your journey on this book? Well, the first words I typed out, uh, ironically enough, actually landed in the book as the first words. That's very unusual for me. But I, I just said, in the beginning, Arthur Lawrence was going to write a movie for Barbara Streisand. And then because I was so interested and really amused by the fact that Ray Stark had said to Lawrence, I want you to write a movie for Barbara. And, and they came up with this cockamamie idea that it was gonna be a, mu a musical and Barbara was gonna be a Brooklyn school teacher teaching blind children to sing, you know, I, as I call it, you know, Brooklyn's answer to Maria von Trapp. And, Arthur Lawrence said that as he was walking over to talk to Barbara about the idea, he thought to himself, 
this isn't just bad. This is horrible. I can't talk to her about this. That really interested me that that was how it started. And as he talked to her, he thought to himself, oh, Barbara is really reminding me of my Cornell University classmate who was so political the way Barbara is. And then the kind of kismet part is he thought, what, what is her name? And then he thought, oh, yeah, her name is Fanny Price. Well, when, when I first read this in the book, I, I had to go back and I said, am I reading correctly? Yeah. Yeah, it, it was kind of amazing. You know, one letter difference from Fanny Bryce, who was Ray Stark's mother-in-law, you know, just all these pieces that fit together. And, and I think that, you know, I, I've thought a lot about wh why the film is still so talked about 50 years later and matters so much to people. And I, I think it's the attraction of opposites. The characters are opposites. The two leads are opposites. But I think even more in a way, this is the story of loving the wrong person. And every single one of us, male or female, at one point or another, has loved the wrong person. And I, I was discussing this with a friend of mine who's the great film historian, Janine Basinger. Oh, and, oh I love know, Right. Fantastic. Nobody knows more about film than Janine. And she said to me something I really love. And she said, Tom, you're right. It is the story of loving the wrong person. Everybody has loved the wrong person. And then she said, except maybe 10 people and who wants to know them? <laughs> well, I will tell you, I mean, the, well, let me ask you this uh, and then I'll talk about my own. Do you have a favorite moment out of the film? Um, it just jumps out at you each time you see it. Yeah, I do. And it's probably not, uh, you know, for most people, it's the ending, which is sensational. Mm -hmm. But for me, my very favorite moment in the film is when they're in college and it's the prom. And, you know, there's Redford looking unbelievably handsome in his, you know, his tails. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guy was just ridiculously good looking. And Barbara's character, Katie, it, is working at the prom. It sums up the differences, but he, she dances with her boyfriend and Redford cuts in on her. And it's the sequence I love the most because you hear in the background, just very faintly wrap your troubles in dreams mm -hmm. and they dance. It's completely silent and it is so erotic the way they look at each other, the, uh, you're getting layers of emotions without a word of dialogue. A and it, it's sexier than anything else I can think of. And that when the dance ends, Redford walks away and he just disappears in the distance. And I think this is- And the look on her face is- Yeah. Yeah, that's my very favorite moment. I mean, do you have one? Well, I was watching today and it just- it, it, it breaks my heart when she ends up in bed with him and she says who she is almost as if he's there by mistake. Right. And obviously, you know, he's had a few drinks and everything. Mm -hmm. And like, she's got this moment of euphoria because here is this handsome man but maybe he's at the wrong place because he doesn't know where he is. But then the next morning, 
the look on his face when he's like trying to pull himself together to get out. I mean, it's brilliant acting. I mean, because he was so handsome, um, you don't always, a lot of people don't always think of him as such a great actor. That moment is so moving to me because it's just this dichotomy of her, you know, the want and the desire and the need that she wants uh, and needs from him. And, uh, And of course, he is the complete opposite of everything that she stands for. Right. And well, yet she falls so helplessly in love with him. I've yeah. got another scene that I want to show, and then okay. we're going to come back and we're going to talk okay. on the other side of this. This is another scene uh, from the movie. So uh, here we are. Katie, you expect so much. Oh, but look what I've got. I just, you know, the editing is so brilliant and you just see this arc of a relationship just right. building there. Not yeah. a word of dialogue, it's all there. Yeah, and it propels the story forward. They're, you know, they're all of a sudden in California leading the life in Hollywood. And uh, there's that, the two things that, uh, I'm glad you chose that uh, scene because uh, what leapt out at me this time was, that great line, which was right at the very beginning of the montage about you expect so much. And she says, ah, but look what I have. I mean, 
we all want that person that believes in us wholeheartedly. And that's very seductive for all of us, I think. And uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful way of conveying, you, you root for them, right? You want them to stay together, but it's kind of impossible given their personalities. Well, Carol Channing used to say, be careful what you wish for because you will surely attain it. Uh, <laughs> and she gets it. I mean, here she gets it. I mean, you know, and before this, the scene where she's at the party right after Roosevelt passes away. Right. And uh, I hope I'm not giving away too many spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen the film. <laughs> but when, and, and everyone's making the jokes. I mean, and then the way that she just lashes out and you think at that moment, that's it. The relationship yeah. is over. Yeah. Um, she has thrown everything she's had away. And he goes back. I mean, yeah. it's the same thing. I mean, even though we get this side, and maybe this was Pollock's doing. I, you know, I don't know. You know, perhaps you can shed light on this. I mean, did you, I mean, with all the work that you, that you saw, various versions of scripts right. and everything, but... Was that Pollock's doing as far as Redford's uh, character of Hubble was concerned uh, in terms of uh, him making the decision to come back? Uh, I think that was actually, that was really Lawrence's attention, you know, all along that because he wanted the coming together, the breaking apart, the coming back together so that you had this rooting interest in it. I, I think where... Lawrence and Pollock and Stark had their biggest disagreements was in the political sequences when the uh, blacklisting came to the forefront. And that's why I wanted to include the story of how the first uh, sneak preview went great for two thirds of the movie until the politics started to intrude. And all of a sudden the audience is getting up and getting popcorn and having a smoke because you could still smoke. Yes, then. yes. And, and so they realized in Pollock's words, people didn't care as much about the politics. The, he, he actually said what they cared about was, is he going to kiss her again? Are they going to get back together? What was the biggest surprise for you? Um, first of all, how long did it take you to write this book? Um, I would say it was probably 18 months. Okay. Uh, maybe a little, just a little shy of two years. And uh, there were, I, I think in terms of surprises there, well, the first surprise was actually to receive such lengthy thoughtful responses from Barbara Streisand because when I, I was able to submit questions to her through her manager of 50 years, Marty Ehrlichman, mm -hmm. who was very nice, but I honestly, I did not know if she was going to respond at all. And it took about a month, but I, uh, now you've written about Streisand before. Was this yeah. your first correspondence with her? Yes, it was. And, and, I, I thought a long time, as you can imagine, about what questions I wanted to ask her, because it, it could not be a question like, did you like Robert Redford? I had to show, you know, that I was very serious about the film. And, and the, the thing that w was so great about it, Richard, and uh, was that the questions I asked, 
I got these paragraph, a paragraph long answer for each question. And I thought, oh, this shows me exactly who she is because every word mattered to her in the responses, in my questions. And I thought, well, this is why she was one of the foremost interpreters of Sondheim because, you know, Sondheim's big statement, God is in the details. Well, the, her answer showed me that that's how she approaches her work. So uh, that, that was uh, so great. And it was a big surprise. And it also showed me, it, it, as she herself has said, one of the statements uh, from her that I've included is, she said, had said previously, I'm very blunt. It saves me a lot of time and it loses me a lot of friends. And which is a really interesting statement. And so one of my questions, I had a, a sort of a multi-part question about the title song because it's so famous. And I started out the question by writing, I read in Marvin Hamlish's autobiography that you preferred the second version of the way we were. And right there in the middle of my question in red letters was the response, that's not true. Oh, wow. Right. So I thought, yep. Every word matters, you know, and it, and then, you know, it was great piecing together how this number one worldwide smash actual song actually came into being and about the second version, which Barbara herself calls the way we weren't. Wonderful. Uh, has she gotten have you gotten a response uh, since the book has come out from Barbara? Uh, uh, no, I haven't. But I think that's because, you know, uh, the official publication date of the book was yesterday. So this is my first day of doing interviews. So we're, you, you and I are- No, so I'm ahead of Barbara on the book. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara, if you're watching, she has watched the show. I know uh, <laughs> she may be watching tonight. If you're watching Barbara, thank you. Thank yeah. you. She, so, I thank her for the really thoughtful answers she gave me, which were really great and enormously helpful to get this firsthand account and from her. And also, I had a terrific, lengthy phone interview um, uh, with, um, why have I just blanked, uh, with James Woods. I almost said Michael oh, Woods. Okay. I don't know why. I, I my, uh, And he was so interesting because it was his first movie yes. and he played Barbara's college boyfriend. And I just want to tell just one story. I'll try to make it brief because I think people listening would like this story, which is he was a young, very ambitious actor. So unknown that when he showed up on the first day for shooting, Sidney Pollack didn't really know who he was. He said, oh, are you playing Barbara's college boyfriend? <laughs> he said, yes, I am. And and so there's that great scene in the library where Barbara is staring. They're in college. He, she's staring at Redford. She's so infatuated. And he's oblivious. And so uh, James Woods wanted to be a part of that as, of scene. And so he went up to Sidney Pollack and he said, you know that scene in the library? And Sidney Pollack instantly said, you mean the scene between the two biggest movie stars in the world? You're not in it. And then he went up to Barbara and said, you know that scene in the library? And Barbara said, you mean the scene between Bob and myself? And Woods, so smart, 
he instantly said to her, well, yeah, that's the scene, but you're looking at Hubble and you are loving him and the way he is. And what's said to Barbara, wouldn't that scene be more interesting if I, as your boyfriend, was eyeing you while you're eyeing Redford? And Barbara thought about it and then said, Sydney, the kid's in the scene. <laughs> God and, bless him. I mean, yeah, great story. Brilliant moment in the film. Yeah, because it's a great can, moment. You can feel the tension between the yeah. three of them. Yeah, yeah. And it's he did say, he also said that both uh, Streisand and Redford were great to him during the filming. And, you know, because he was a complete unknown. And now, of course, he's an Emmy winner and Academy Award nominee, but then an unknown. And he said they were both very, uh, he really liked both of them a lot. What's your process when you're writing a book such as this? I mean, you, when you're writing a, a biography, is it a different process than writing a book about a film? Um, I think the that uh, the basics are similar, but my method is different because in in a film in this film, uh, you know, this particular film, or if it was about The Godfather, or if it was about The Sound of Music, I want to look at all the departments involved in making the film. This sort of refers back to that great question you asked earlier. So I'm really uh, casting my net in a wide fashion you know, um, to try. So I want to look at the careers of the costume designers, for instance, on the way we were, because the look of the film is so important and so crucial to its success. And then that led me to find out. So if I cast that net in a really wide way, then I'm, I'm reading and I'm learning that Redford was so low key about his uniforms, but Barbara, every detail mattered. So that's fun because it informs their approach to the roles and informs the films. Well, what I admire about you, I mean, this is about celebrating you, so I'm going to celebrate you. But uh, what I really admire about you and your writing is um, your books, and this is my platform as well, are not gossipy. They are, it's like just the facts, ma'am. Uh, we really get a sense of how the film unfolded, how it came to be. And I never get a sense uh, that I am reading a gossipy tome on a film. And there are other books that are out there uh, with respect to those authors and those fans who want those books. That's not what this book is about. Yeah. Well, uh uh, thanks for noticing that and and saying that. And it's not my sensibility. I want the personalities, of course, to inform and and the anecdotes. But I, I ultimately, I think with all the show business books, you know, whether it's about an individual or about a film, it's ultimately the work that interests us. That's why we're still talking about these people and these films. And so that's what I really want to concentrate on rather than their, you know, uh, the sort of gossipy part of it. And that that's just my approach. Others approach it differently. I, you know, and it works for them, but I, I'm ultimately, I love knowing things like, Oh, you know, the cinematographer, 
talked about the right way to shoot Barbara Streisand on film. And then what interests me more is the cinematographer on The Way We Were was Harry Stradling Jr. And Harry Stradling Sr. shot Barbara's first three big musicals. That really interests me a lot. And I think, I hope, interests film fans because it's how it affects how the film looks and how we respond to it. And I also want you, and you bring this out in the, in the book as well, that uh, both Stradlings um, really respected Barbara because Barbara had such an inquisitive nature yeah. in terms of the questions that she would ask. And, you know, we've gone through that period. And I think that as we have evolved, at least I hope we have, that people respect her artistry much more than they were in the 70s when she was getting, given the reputation of being um, a diva. Yeah. Uh, and just, uh, I mean, some of the stories are legendary um, of her, you know, asking all the questions and everything. Right. But she wanted to be the best that she could possibly be. Right. And she is, let's face it. I, I think that's right. I, everything you said, and I was really interested to learn uh, that Sidney Pollack said that Barbara Streisand was the least problematic person he dealt with on the film, that she was very happy with the role. She knew it was a great role. And also he said that her constant um, questioning and attention to detail came from a good place. He said it was never to be, you know, annoying or that that it was about every detail mattered, as I was saying earlier, wanting the film to be as good as it possibly could be. So he found her actually the easiest to deal with because he was, you know, also dealing with the squabbles with Arthur Lawrence and Ray Stark. And so that, that you had asked earlier about surprises uh, in my research, and that was a very pleasant surprise. Well, there are two personalities that you will talk about those for a moment. Uh, you've got Barbara Streisand, who has the reputation of being a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. And when I think of that reputation of her being a perfectionist, I don't look at that in a negative at all. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of that, Arthur Lawrence based on everything that we know about him, I think that a lot of it, unfortunately, had to do with an ego that got in the way of his craft on more than one occasion. Mm. And also, um, you know, if, if I can bring this up, do you think because of the time frame that he was living in and that he was gay mm -hmm. had a lot to do with that? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I think it has to have influenced his approach and behavior, certainly to some degree. Um, I think the fact that, uh, well, with this particular film, the fact that he was blacklisted uh, obviously had affected him. And whether or not, I, I'm not certain whether part of that blacklisting, was it just political or was it the fact that he was known to be gay? Um, because, you know, that obviously factored in with uh, uh, people like 
Jerome Robbins and the, and the trouble he got into. So I think, and in terms of the Lawrence approach, um, that whether his being gay, uh, if this is your question, affected his behavior, his approach, is that? I, I, I'm in, in terms of the way that he lashed out with so many uh, people. Well, I think he, uh, he was of a personality that he, he said what was on his mind and oftentimes there was not a filter. Mm-hmm. And I, I think uh, that caused a lot of problems. And I think when, uh, and I think this is perhaps, as you said, related to the times he was in uh, and working then, when on some level you feel powerless, I'm playing amateur shrink here. Yes. But when on some level, when you feel powerless because gay men and women were almost virtually powerless at that time, you need to feel a sense of power in other ways. And one way you can achieve that is by being verbally very difficult slash abusive. And I think it's a way of making up for it. Um, I I never worked with him. I I don't. It, it, I I can't speak to it. You know, fully. It wouldn't be right for me. But certainly, combing through his papers, I realized uh, he was so talented. The guy was such a great oh writer. God, yes. But really, his record speaks for itself. But I think on some level, he seemed angry to me just angry in general and does that come through in his writing i mean in his, in his papers in his private papers in in some of them yes absolutely not everything i mean he could be very humorous and you know he he was a talented guy and funny and if he liked you he was a great friend but i think you know when i came to that uh the eight-page single-spaced memo he typed to Ray Stark, listing all his objections to the rough cut. This was not just, oh, I don't like this sequence. This was phrased in a way that it was as if... It was cutting. Yeah, and he was yelling at Ray Stark. So I think that was a function of the personality. Um, That was how he approached things like this. Um, I guess he was so disappointed because with that rough cut because um, the incidents that were being rewritten by 11 writers were taken directly from Lawrence's own life. So imagine how any of us would feel if 11 writers were rewriting our lives. You know, we'd be mad too. Um, It happens to me on a daily basis. (laughs) (laughs) No, I want to go back. Yes. I want to go back to something you said early on in the interview. You mentioned uh, that the jumping off point for you were you hearing these two women uh, enacting that final scene from the film, Ban the Bomb. Um, And uh, how long had it been since you had last seen the film? And once Mm -hmm. you sat down to write the book and you go back to watch the film again, what was different for you this time watching the film? Now, as an author writing this book, you're watching, you're looking at it obviously through different eyes right. than you were years ago yeah. watching it as a spectator. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and through different eyes, then another reason I wanted to write the book was my very first book was about uh, Streisand, the importance of being Barbara. And that was uh, published 17 years ago. So I'm a different person and I want to, you know, I thought, oh, I'll react to the film differently. And in fact, I did. I, I think that um, on the negative side, I realized how jumpy the editing is in the last third of the movie with the political sequences. It really jumps out at you uh -huh. in a way, I, I, more so than I remembered from the last time. And on the positive side, I actually, it's a funny thing to say, but I appreciated those lead performances even more because I thought Barbara really controls her personality. You know, she, she has such a larger than life persona and it is tamped down in this movie. It is just a straightforward performance. And so I admire the performance a lot. I think it's the best she's ever been. And, um, and it also made me appreciate how Redford's such a great film actor. I never saw him on stage, um, but, you know, in Barefoot in the Park, but um, he, he conveys so much with so little. And so I thought, oh, this is why they're so great for each other. You know, that they're, they're opposite approaches. So th those were kind of a, one was a slightly negative re reaction, but the other, which was bigger, was my appreciation for it. And I just thought, ah, so many people love this film and remember it. I have to, I just wanted to write about it again. I remember again when the film came out and then throughout the 80s, there were there was constant talk of a sequel to this film. Right. right. I don't think a sequel could have ever worked. Do you? Oh, that's a that you just said the twenty million dollar question. Could it? Couldn't it? Because there were three different versions of a sequel written. One by Lawrence. That's uh -huh. where it started. Uh -huh. um, I think maybe Alvin Sargent wrote another one. Uh, um, I can't swear to that. Uh, and I think that, oh, I, you know, Richard, in a way I give an equivocal answer because the ending of the movie is so perfect. I'm not sure I want to see it continued, but at the same time, I have to know if they get back together. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, I said to... I said to somebody I, that they were asking me about this very issue. And I said, well, you know, to find out what happened to these three scripts and why the film, the sequel wasn't made, I said, you have to read the book. And then I added, plus, I have my own idea for a sequel. So there you go. It's also interesting to me, again, going back, watching it, that you see his wife but you don't see her husband. Right. You see, you see, you never see Dr. David X. Cohen. Right. But you, you, because his wife, if you think about this for a moment, his wife is very much the cookie cutter image of what his wife would have been if Katie had never come along. Right. You're you're talking about the woman that's seen with Redford in the last the very last, the scene. last scene, yeah. When she has that famous line, "Your girl is lovely, Hubble." Right, right. Yeah, 
I, I never, that's interesting, Richard. I never made the leap that they were necessarily married, but maybe they, maybe they are. And it sums up all the difference in the world that she's saying your girl is lovely. And then she's inviting him over for drinks, but you know, as he says, I can't come. He right. just, he can't. And uh, uh, so I, I to me, that we all make up our own ending. I mean, do you think they would ever get back together again? Would there would there be a sequel? Do you think, or they should just leave it as is? No, I, I you know, it's like it's Scarlet and Red. You know, it's just like you know they did a sequel to you know Gone with the Wind, and it just doesn't work for me. Right. Um, I've got one last question that I'm going to ask you, uh, Rosa Puzo, who is coming to see you in person tomorrow night. Great. So yes, Great. Uh, she will be there. Um, nice. She brings Thank up you. a point. She said that she wished they didn't cut the scene where Katie sees the student like her. Right. Um, I'm sure that with you know all your research, are there cut scenes that you wish hadn't uh, made it to the final uh, film that uh, would have made a difference in your mind? Yes, that's one of them. But the one that I really wish they filmed and didn't include in the final print is this, to me, incredibly moving scene where they're still in New York and she's she says the words. She says, I love you, Hubble. And he looks at her and then he looks down and he can't say, I love you, Katie. And it's heartbreaking. And then she says, and it's Streisand delivers it so beautifully. She just says, that's okay. That's her response to his silence. I feel that that scene would have so informed the characters, but they cut it. Wow. So, you know, uh, uh, it's, a, it's the game we all play with Hollywood, right? What if? What, what, if, what, if, what if, if they had included Yeah. Well, Tom, I mean, I, this hour has flown for me. Uh, uh, this, you this are truly one of my favorite writers. Oh. Um, I live in anticipation. There are other books, Bob Avian. I mean, so many, uh, you know, Barbara Cook is on the shelf. Oh, uh, so many other books that you've written that I just adore. Uh, I'm going to give my final comments and then I'm going to give you the final word tonight. It can be about anything that we talked about that you want to expound upon, okay. anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with. Uh, don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll but okay. you will have the final word tonight. Uh, before I say goodbye, however, I want everyone, um, call your favorite bookseller and ask for this book. Um, if they don't have it, uh, it's available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, you know, Tom has done a few book signings. He's going to be in Connecticut tomorrow night. Uh, the name of the bookstore, for those who are watching, is... R.J. Julia in Madison. And then on Saturday, I'll be in my hometown of Waterbury, Connecticut at Barnes & Noble. And then uh, a week from tonight, I'll be at a Barnes & Noble in New York City, which is where I live and work. And I'm really looking forward to seeing all my pals in all those places. And if you'll get those links to me, I will get them all on the oh. YouTube channel. And I will make Thank sure you. that we get the word out for anyone. And anyone, uh, everyone who watched the show tonight, if you could leave a comment on the YouTube channel and let uh, me know what you think of tonight's show. 
that helps in terms of the analytics of the show and the ratings. Uh, I end every show uh, by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Uh, go to your favorite bookseller and order two copies of this book. Keep one for yourself and then send one to a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while. Then pick up the phone and call them and let them know about your favorite moments from this film or any other film for that matter. And Tom has these in other incredible books. Let this be the jumping off point for you if you haven't read the other books. They are all incredible. Um, National Book Blitz Month was created because it's a jumping off point to get people to read again, mm -hmm. especially our kids. Get them off social media, get them to read a good book. It's important to do so. Uh, I wanna acknowledge this past week, uh, uh, well, a few things that I'm gonna throw in here. Uh, one of my dear, dear friends, Carol Cook, uh, passed away just shy of her 99th birthday. Uh, also, just a couple of days yesterday, uh, four years ago, Carol Channing passed away. And she passed away just shy of her 99th birthday. Today also, 59 years ago today, on Broadway, Carol descended those stairs at the Harmonia Gardens for the first time on Broadway. Oh. Uh, so uh, we celebrate all of these great artists that have gone before us. Uh, and of course, Barbara Streisand descended those stairs on the screen. Uh, they all brought something magical to the, uh, to the role of Dolly Levi. We celebrate them all. We celebrate all the great artists that have gone before us. I do what I do because I believe all these voices need to be heard. We need to celebrate our past, celebrate our present, and celebrate the future of what's ahead. Uh, don't have a closed eye to what's going on on Broadway today and in our music and in our books. Get out there and listen. Uh, I also uh, have told everyone to go out, pick up the phone, and call someone that you haven't spoken to in a while. Uh, not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call. Mm -hmm. and let these people know what they mean to you. Uh, a dear friend of mine says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And I say, you know, we're all in different size boats. Some are in yachts, some are in sailboats, some are pushing tugboats like Barbara Streisand up the <laughs> Hudson River. Right. It doesn't matter what size boat you're on. Just make sure if you're on a boat, you have a skipper by your side. And with that note, I'm going to say good night. And Tom, it's all yours. And like I said, don't worry about how to end the show. I will end it when you say goodbye. Thank you. And you're always welcome here. It's all yours. Thank you. Uh, I think I'd like to end by... Uh saying three things. The first one is, Richard, thank you for this interview. It was great. I really appreciate it uh, for your thoughtful questions. Uh, uh, it was really fun to talk to you. The second thing I want to say is I love the fact that you are promoting National Book Blitz Month, if I have that correct, because there's nothing more important than all of us reading and learning and sharing the information. I, I love the fact that you're using your platform for that. And the third thing is actually just relates to what you said about going out to call somebody you love and letting them know you care. Um, I, I was thinking about the fact that the way we were in a lot of ways makes me think of F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, you know, 
the Golden Boy Hubble, because uh, Fitzgerald's my favorite author. And I, he has this great phrase where he talks about the golden hour. And the golden hours when all your aspects of your life come together, the personal, the professional, you achieve for this fleeting hour kind of a, a kind of perfect happiness. And we all have this instinct to want to pin that down, right? And it's impossible to pin it down and it's elusive, but the trying for it is not only a necessary part of life, but it's a great part of life. And I think that's a part of the way we were. And I think that trying to pin it down and making the connection with other people as Ian Forster would say, only connect. That's what Richard's talking about when he says, pick up the phone, call somebody, tell them you love them. Uh, Those are uh, uh, better words than I personally could ever come up with. So uh, thanks, Richard. And thank you all for listening.